This is Audible. Random House Audio presents A Feast for Crows, Book 4 of A Song of Ice and Fire, by George R. R. Martin, read for you by Roy Dotrice. Prologue Dragons, said Melander. He snatched a withered apple off the ground and tossed it hand to hand. Throw the apple, urged Alaris the Sphinx. He slipped an arrow from his quiver and knocked it to his bowstring. I should like to see a dragon. Rune was the youngest of them, a chunky boy still two years shy of manhood. I should like that very much. And I should like to sleep with Rose's arms around me, Pate thought. He shifted restlessly on the bench. By the morrow, the girl could well be his. I will take her far from Old Town, across the narrow sea, to one of the free cities. There were no maesters there, no one to accuse him. He could hear Emma's laughter coming through a shuttered window overhead, mingled with the deeper voice of the man she was entertaining. She was the oldest of the serving wenches at the quill and tankard, forty if she was a day, but still pretty in a fleshy sort of way. Rosie was her daughter, fifteen, and freshly flowered. Emma had decreed that Rosie's maidenhead would cast a golden dragon. Pate had saved nine silver stags and a pot of silver stars and pennies for all the good that would do him. He would have stood a better chance of hatching a real dragon than saving up enough coin to make a golden one. You were born too late for dragons, lad, Armin the acolyte told Rune. Armin wore a leather thong about his neck, strung with links of pewter, tin, lead, and copper. And like most acolytes, he seemed to believe that novices had turnips growing from their shoulders in place of heads. The last one perished during the reign of King Aegon III. The last dragon in Westeros, insisted Melander. Throw the apple, Alaris urged again. He was a comely youth, their sphinx. All serving wenches doted on him. Even Rosie would sometimes touch him on the arm when she brought him wine, and Pate had to gnash his teeth and pretend not to see. The last dragon in Westeros was the last dragon, said Armand doggedly. That is well known. The apple, Alaris said, unless you mean to eat it. Here, dragging his club foot, Melander took a short hop, whirled, and whipped the apple side-arm into the mist that hung above the honey wine. If not for his foot, he would have been a knight like his father. He had the strength for it, in those thick arms and broad shoulders. Far and fast the apple flew, but not as fast as the arrow that whistled after it, a yard-long shaft of golden wood fletched with scarlet feathers. Pate did not see the arrow catch the apple, but he heard it. A soft chunk echoed back across the river, followed by a splash. Melanda whistled. You caught it, sweet. Not half as sweet as Rosie. Pate loved her hazel eyes and budding breasts and the way she smiled every time she saw him. He loved the dimples in her cheeks. Sometimes she went barefoot as she served to feel the grass beneath her feet. He loved that too. He loved the clean, fresh smell of her the way her hair curled behind her ears. He even loved her toes. One night she let him rub her feet and play with them, and he made up a funny tale for every toe to keep her giggling. Perhaps he would do better 
to remain on this side of the narrow sea. He could buy a donkey with a coin he'd saved, and he and Rosie could take turns riding it as they wandered westwards. Ebros might not think him worthy of the silver, but Pate knew how to set a bone and leech a fever. The small folk would be grateful for his help. If he could learn to cut hair and shave beards, he might even be a barber. That would be enough, he told himself, so long as I had Rosie. Rosie was all that he wanted in the world. That had not always been so. Once he had dreamed of being a maester in a castle, a service to some open-handed lord who would honour him for his wisdom and bestow a fine white horse on him to thank him for his service. How high he'd ride, how nobly, smiling down at the small folk when he passed them on the road. One night, in the Quill and Tankard's common room, after his second tankard of fearsomely strong cider, Pate had boasted that he would not always be a novice. Choo choo, Lazy Leo had called out, you'll be a former novice, herding swine. He drained the dregs of his tankard. The torch-lit terrace of the Quillan tankard was an island of light in a sea of mist this morning. Downriver, the distant beacon of the high tower floated in a damp of night like a hazy orange moon, but the light did little to lift his spirits. The alchemist should have come by now. Had it all been some cruel jape, or had something happened to the man? It would not have been the first time that good fortune had turned sour on Pate. He had once counted himself lucky to be chosen to help old Archmaester Walgrave with the ravens, never dreaming that before long he would also be fetching the man's meals, sweeping out his chambers, and dressing him every morning. Everyone said that Walgrave had forgotten more of Ravencraft than most maesters ever knew. So Pate assumed a black iron link was the least that he could hope for, only to find that Walgrave could not grant him one. The old man remained an archmaester only by courtesy. As great a maester as once he'd been, now his robes concealed soiled small clothes. Oft as not, and half a year ago some acolytes found him weeping in the library, unable to find his way back to his chambers. Maester Gorman sat below the iron mask in Walgrave's place, the same Gorman who had once accused Pate of theft. In the apple tree beside the water, a nightingale began to sing. It was a sweet sound, a welcome respite from the harsh screams and endless corkings of the ravens he had tended all day long. The white ravens knew his name and would mutter it to each other whenever they caught sight of him. Pate! 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 Until he wanted to scream. The big white birds were Archmaester Walgrave's pride. He wanted them to eat him when he died, but Pate half suspected they meant to eat him too. Perhaps it was the fearsomely strong cider. He had not come here to drink, but Alaris had been buying to celebrate his cup a link, and guilt had made him thirsty. But it almost sounded as if the nightingales were trilling, Go for iron! Go for iron! Go for iron! Which was passing strange, because that was what the stranger had said the night Rosie brought the two of them together. Who are you? Pater demanded of him, and the man had replied, An alchemist, I can change iron into gold. 
and then the coin was in his hand, dancing across his knuckles, the soft yellow gold shining in the candlelight. On one side was a three-headed dragon, on the other the head of some dead king. Gold for iron, Pate remembered. You won't do better. Do you want her? Do you love her? I'm no thief, he told the man who had called himself the alchemist. I am a novice of the citadel. The alchemist had bowed his head and said, If you should reconsider, I shall return here three days hence with my dragon. Three days had passed. Pate had returned to the quill and tankard, still uncertain what he was, but instead of the alchemist he found Melanda and Armand and the Sphinx, with Rune in tow. It would have raised suspicions not to join them. The quill and tankard never closed. For six hundred years it had been standing on its island in the honey wine, and never once had its doors been shut to trade. Though the tall timber building leaned toward the south, the way novices sometimes leaned after a tankard, Pate expected that the inn would go on standing for another six hundred years, selling wine and ale and fearsomely strong cider to rivermen and seamen, smiths and singers, priests and princes, and the novices and acolytes of the citadel. Old Town is not the world, declared Melanda too loudly. He was a night son, and drunk as drunk could be. Since they brought him word of his father's death upon the Blackwater, he got drunk most every night. Even in Old Town, far from the fighting and safe behind its walls, the War of the Five Kings had touched them all. Although Archmaster Benedict insisted that there had never been a War of Five Kings, since Renly Baratheon had been slain before Balin Greyjoy had crowned himself. My father always said the world was bigger than any lord's castle, Melanda went on. Dragons must be the least of things a man might find in Carth and Assai and Yaitai. These sailors' stories are stories told by sailors, Armin interrupted. Sailors, my dear Melanda, go back down to the docks, and I'll wager you'll find sailors who'll tell you of the mermaids that they bedded or how they spent a year in the belly of a fish. Well, how'd you know they didn't? Melanda thumped through the grass, looking for more apples. You need to be down in the belly yourself to swear they weren't. One sailor with a story, aye. A man might laugh at that, but when a oarsman of four different ships tell the same tale in four different tongues, the tales are not the same, insisted Armand. Dragons in Assai, dragons in Karth, dragons in Merian, Dothraki dragons, dragons freeing slaves, each telling differs from the last. Only in details, Melander grew more stubborn when he drank, and even when sober he was bullheaded. All speak of dragons and a beautiful young queen. The only dragon Pate cared about was made of yellow gold. He wondered what had happened to the alchemist. The third day, he said he'd be here. There's another apple near your foot, Alaris called to Melanda, and I still have two arrows in my quiver. Fuck your quiver, Melanda scooped up the windfall. This one's wormy, he complained, but he threw it anyway. The arrow caught the apple as it began to fall and sliced it clean in two. One half landed 
on a turret roof, tumbled to a lower roof, bounced, and missed Armin by a foot. If you cut a worm in two, you make two worms, the acolyte informed them. If only it worked that way with apples, no one would ever need go hungry, said Alaris, with one of his soft smiles. The Sphinx was always smiling, as if he knew some secret jape. It gave him a wicked look that went well with his pointed chin, widow's peak, and dense mat of close-cropped jet-black curls. Alaris would make a maester. He had only been at the Citadel for a year, yet already he had forged three links of his maester's chain. Armin might have more, but each of his had taken a year to earn. Still, he would make a maester, too. Rune and Melanda remained pink-necked novices, but Rune was very young, and Melanda preferred drinking to reading. Pate, though. He had been five years at the Citadel, arriving when he was no more than three and ten, yet his neck remained as pink as it had been on the day he first arrived from the Westerlands. Twice had he believed himself ready. The first time he had gone before Archmaester Valen to demonstrate his knowledge of the heavens. Instead he learned how Vinegar Valen had earned that name. It took Pate two years to summon up the courage to try again. This time he submitted himself to kindly old Archmaester Ebros, renowned for his soft voice and gentle hands. But Ebros's size had somehow proved just as painful as Valen's barbs. One last apple, promised Alaris, and I will tell you what I suspect about these dragons. What can you know that I don't? grumbled Melanda. He spied an apple on a branch, jumped up, pulled it down, and threw. Alaris drew his bowstring back to his ear, turning gracefully to follow the target in flight. He loosed his shaft just as the apple began to fall. You always miss your last shot, said Rune. The apple splashed down into the river, untouched. See, said Rune, the day you make them all is the day you stop improving. Alice unstrung his longbow and eased it into its leather case. The bow was carved from Goldenheart, a rare and fabled wood from the Summer Isles. Pate had tried to bend it once and failed. The Sphinx looked slight but there's strength in those slim arms, he reflected, as Alaris threw a leg across the bench and reached for his wine cup. The dragon has three heads, he announced in his soft Dornish drawl. Is this a riddle? Rune wanted to know. Sphinxes always speak in riddles in the tales. No riddle, Alaris sipped his wine. The rest of them were quaffing tankards of the fearsomely strong cider that the quill and tankard was renowned for, but he preferred the strange sweet wines of his mother's country. Even in Old Town such wines did not come cheap. It had been Lazy Leo who dubbed Alaris the Sphinx. A Sphinx is a bit of this, a bit of that, a human face, the body of a lion, the wings of a hawk. Alaris was the same. His father was a Dornishman, his mother a black-skinned summer islander. His own skin was dark as teak, and like the green marble sphinxes that flanked the citadel's main gate, Alaris had eyes of onyx. No dragon has ever had three heads except on shields and banners, Armin the Acolyte said firmly. That was a heraldic charge, no more. Furthermore, the Targaryens are all dead. Not all, 
said Alaris. The beggar king had a sister. I thought her head was smashed against a wall, said Rune. No, said Alaris. It was Prince Rhaegar's young son, Aegon, whose head was dashed against the wall by the lion of Lannister's brave men. We speak of Rhaegar's sister, born on Dragonstone before its fall, the one they call Daenerys. The Stormborn, I recall her now. Melanda lifted his tankard high, slushing the cider that remained. Yes, sir, he gulped, slammed his empty tankard down, belched, and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. Where's Rosie? Our rightful queen deserves another round of cider, wouldn't you say? Armin the Acolyte looked alarmed. Lower your voice, fool. You should not even jape about such things. You never know who could be listening. The spider has ears everywhere. Ah, oh, don't piss your breeches, Armin. I was proposing a drink, not a rebellion. Pate heard a chuckle. A soft, sly voice called out from behind him. I always knew you were a traitor, Hopfrog. Lazy Leo was slouching by the foot of the old plank bridge, draped in satin, striped in green and gold, with a black silk half-cape pinned to his shoulder by a rose of jade. The wine he dribbled on his front had been a robust red, judging from the color of the spots. A lock of his ash-blonde hair fell down across one eye. Melanda bristled at the sight of him. Bugger that! Go away! You're not welcome here! Alaris laid a hand upon his arm to calm him, whilst Armin frowned. Leo, my lord had understood that you were still confined to the Citadel for three more days. Lazy Leo shrugged. Periston says the world is forty thousand years old. Mollus says five hundred thousand. What are three days, I ask you? Though there were a dozen empty tables on the terrace, Leo sat himself at theirs. Buy me a cup of arbor gold, Hopfrog, and perhaps I won't inform my father of your toast. The tiles turned against me at the check at hazard, and I wasted my last stag on supper. Suckling pig in plum sauce, stuffed with chestnuts and white truffles. A man must eat. What did you lads have? Mutton, muttered Melander. He sounded none too pleased about it. We shared a haunch of boiled mutton. Oh, I'm certain it was filling, Leo turned to Alice. A lord's son should be open-handed, Sphinx. I understand you won your copper link. I'll drink to that. Alice smiled back at him. I only buy for friends, and I am no lord's son. I've told you that. My mother was a traitor. Leo's eyes were hazel, bright with wine and malice. Your mother was a monkey from the Summer Isles. The Darnish will fuck anything with a hole between its legs. Uh, meaning no offence. You may be brown as a nut, but at least you bathe, unlike our spotted pig boy. He waved a hand toward Pate. If I hit him in the mouth with my tankard, I could knock out half his teeth, Pate thought. Spotted Pate, the pig boy, was the hero of a thousand rival stories, a good-hearted, empty-headed lout who always managed to best the fat lordings, haughty knights, and pompous septons who beset him. 
Somehow his stupidity would turn out to have been a sort of uncouth cunning. His tales always ended with spotted pate sitting on a lord's high seat, or bedding some knight's daughter. But those were stories. In the real world, pig boys never fared so well. Pate sometimes thought his mother must have hated him to have named him as she did. Alaris was no longer smiling. You will apologize. Will I? said Leo. How can I, with my throat so dry? You shame your house with every word you say, Alaris told him. You shame the citadel by being one of us. I know, so buy me some wine that I may drown my shame. Philander said, I would tear your tongue out by the roots. Truly, then how would I tell you about the dragons? Leo shrugged again. The mongrel has the right of it. The mad king's daughter is alive, and she's hatched herself three dragons. Three? said Rune, astonished. Leo patted his hand. Uh, more than two, and less than four. I would not try for my golden link just yet, if I were you. You leave him be, warned Melanda. Oh, such a chivalrous hop-frog, as you wish. Every man of every ship that sail within a hundred leagues of Carth is speaking of these dragons. A few will even tell you that they've seen them. The Marge is inclined to believe them. Armand pursed his lips in disapproval. Marwyn is unsound. Archmaester Pyrrhuston would be the first to tell you that. Archmaester Ryan says so too, said Ruin. Leo yawned. The sea is wet, the sun is warm, and the menagerie hates the mastiff. He has a mocking name for everyone, thought Pate, but he could not deny that Marwyn looked more a mastiff than a maester, as if he wants to bite you. The mage was not like other maesters. People said he kept company with whores and hedge wizards, talked with airy Ebenese and pitch-black summer islanders in their own tongues, and sacrificed to queer gods at the little sailors' temples down by the wharfs. Men spoke of seeing him down in the undercity, in rat pits and black brothels, consorting with mummers, singers, sell-swords, even beggars. Some even whispered, that once he had killed a man with his fists. When Marwyn had returned to Old Town, after spending eight years in the East, mapping distant lands, searching for lost books, and studying with warlocks and shadow-binders, Vinegar Valen had dubbed him Marwyn the Mage. The name was soon all over Old Town, to Valen's vast annoyance. Leave spells and prayers to priests and septons, and bend your wits to learning truths a man can trust in. Archmaester Ryan had once counseled Pate, but Ryan's ring and rod and mask were yellow gold, and his maester's chain had no link of Valerian steel. Armin looked down his nose at Lazy Leo. He had the perfect nose for it, long and thin and pointed. Archmaester Marwyn believes in many curious things, he said. But he has no more proof of dragons than Melanda, just more sailor stories. You're wrong, said Leo. There is a glass candle burning in the Major's chambers. A hush fell upon the torchlit terrace. 
Armin sighed and shook his head. Melander began to laugh. The sphinx studded Lear with his big black eyes. Rune looked lost. Pate knew about the glass candles. They had never seen one burn. They were the worst-kept secret of the Citadel. It was said that they had been brought to Old Town from Valeria a thousand years before the Doom. He had heard there were four. One was green, and three were black, and all were tall and twisted. "'What are these glass candles?' asked Rune. Armin the Acolyte cleared his throat. "'The night before an acolyte says his vows, he must stand a vigil in the vault. No lantern is permitted him, no torch, no lamp, no taper, only a candle of obsidian. He must spend the night in darkness, unless he can light that candle. Some will try, the foolish and the stubborn, those who have made a study of these so-called higher mysteries.' Often they cut their fingers, for the ridges on the candles are said to be as sharp as razors. Then, with bloody hands, they must wait upon the dawn, brooding on their failure. Wiser men they simply go to sleep, or spend their night in prayer. But every year there are always a few who must try. Yes, Pate had heard the same stories, but what's the use of a candle that casts no light? It is a lesson. Armin said. The last lesson we must learn before we don our maester's chains. The glass candle is meant to represent truth and learning, rare and beautiful and fragile things. It is made in the shape of a candle to remind us that a maester must cast light wherever he serves, and it is sharp to remind us that knowledge can be dangerous. Wise men may grow arrogant in their wisdom, but a maester must always remain humble. The glass candle reminds us of that as well. Even after he said his vow and donned his chain and gone forth to serve, a maester will think back on the darkness of his vigil and remember how nothing that he did could make the candle burn. For even with knowledge, some things are not possible. Lazy Leo burst out laughing. Not possible for you, you mean. I saw the candle burning with my own eyes. You saw some candle burning, I don't doubt, said Armin. A candle of black wax, perhaps. I know what I saw. The light was queer and bright, much brighter than any beeswax or tallow candle. It cast strange shadows, and the flame never flickered, not even when a draught blew through the open door behind me. Armin crossed his arms. Obsidian does not burn. Dragonglass, Pate said. The small folk call it dragonglass. Somehow that seemed important. They do, mused Alaris the Sphinx. And if there are dragons in the world again? Dragons and darker things, said Lear. The grey sheep have closed their eyes, but the mastiff sees the truth. Old powers waken, shadows stir. An age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us, an age for gods and heroes. He stretched, smiling his lazy smile. That's worth a round, I'd say. We've drunk enough, said Armin. Morn will be upon us sooner than we'd like, and Archmaster Ebras will be speaking on the properties of urine. Those who mean to forge a silver link 
would do well not to miss his talk. Oh, far be it from me to keep you from the piss-tasting, said Leo. Myself, I prefer the taste of arbor gold. If the choice is piss or you, I'll drink piss. Melander pushed back from the table. Come, Rune. The Sphinx reached for his bouquets. It's bad for me as well. I expect I'll dream of dragons and glass candles. All of you? Leo shrugged. Well, Rosie will remain. Perhaps I'll wake her little sweet meat and make a woman of her. Adras saw the look on Pate's face. If he does not have a copper for a cup of wine, he cannot have a dragon for the girl. Aye, says Melanda. Besides, it takes a man to make a woman. Come with us, Pate. Old Wargrave will wake when the sun comes up. He'll be needing you to help him to the privy. If he remembers who I am today, Archmaster Walgrave had no trouble telling one raven from another, but he was not so good with people. Some days he seemed to think Pate was someone named Crescent. Not just yet, he told his friends. I'm going to stay a while. Dawn had not broken, not quite. The alchemist might still be coming, and Pate meant to be here if he did. As you wish said Armin. Alras gave Pate a lingering look, then slung his bow over one slim shoulder and followed the others toward the bridge. Melanda was so drunk he had to walk with a hand on Rune's shoulder to keep from falling. The citadel was no great distance as the raven flies, but none of them were ravens, and Old Town was a veritable labyrinth of a city, all wines and crisscrossing alleys and narrow crookback streets. Careful! Pate had Armin say, as the river mists swallowed up the four of them. The night is damp, and the cobbles will be slippery. When they were gone, Lazy Leo considered Pate sourly across the table. How sad. The Sphinx has stolen off with all his silver, abandoning me to spotted Pate, the pig boy. He stretched, yawning. How is our lovely little Rosie, pray? She's sleeping, Pate said curtly. Naked, I don't doubt, Leo grinned. Do you think she's truly worth a dragon? One day, I suppose, I must find out. Pate knew better than to reply to that. Leo needed no reply. I expect that once I've broken in the wench, her price will fall to where even pig boys will be able to afford her. <laughs> you ought to thank me. I ought to kill you, Pate thought, but he was not near drunk enough to throw away his life. Leo had been trained to arms and was known to be deadly with Bravo's blade and dagger, and if Pate should somehow kill him, it would mean his own head too. Leo had two names, where Pate had only one, and his second was Torell. Sir Morin Torell, commander of the city watch of Otown, was Leo's father. Mace Torell, Lord of Highgarden and Warden of the South, was Leo's cousin, and Old Town's own man, Lord Leighton of the High Tower, who numbered Protector of the Citadel amongst his many titles, was a sworn bannerman of House Torell. Let it go, Pate told himself. He says these things just to wound me. The mists were lightening to the east. Dawn! 
Pete realised. Dawn has come, and the alchemist has not. He did not know whether he should laugh or cry. Am I still a thief if I put it all back, and no one ever knows? It was another question he had no answer for, like those that Ebros and Valen had once asked him. When he pushed back from the bench and got to his feet, the fearsomely strong side all went to his head at once. He had to put a hand on the table to steady himself. Leave Rosie be, he said by way of parting. Just leave her be, or I may kill you. Leo Turrell flicked the hair back from his eye. I do not fight duels with pig boys. Go away. Pate turned and crossed the terrace. His heels rang against the weathered planks of the old bridge. By the time he reached the other side, the eastern sky was turning pink. The world is wide, he told himself. If I bought that donkey, I could still wander the roads and barways of the Seven Kingdoms, leeching the small folk and picking nits out of their air. I could sign on to some ship, pull an oar, and sail to Carth by the Jade Gates to see these bloody dragons for myself. I do not need to go back to our war grave and the ravens. Yet somehow his feet turned back toward the citadel. When the first shaft of sunlight broke through the clouds to the east, morning bells began to peal from the sailors' sept down by the harbour. The Lord sept joined in a moment later. Then the seven shrines from their gardens across the honey wine, and finally the starry sept that had been the seat of the high septon for a thousand years before Aegon landed at King's Landing. They made a mighty music, though not so sweet as one small nightingale. He could hear singing, too, beneath the pealing of the bells. Each morning at first light, the red priests gathered to welcome the sun outside their modest wharfside temple. For the night is dark and full of terrors. Pate had heard them cry those words a hundred times, asking their god Relor to save them from the darkness. The seven were gods enough for him, but he had heard that Stannis Baratheon worshipped at the night fires now. He'd even put the fiery heart of Relor on his banners in place of the crown stag. If he should win the Iron Throne, we'll all need to learn the words of the Red Priest's song, Pate thought but that was not likely. Tywin Lannister had smashed Stannis and Relor upon the Blackwater, and soon enough he would finish them and mount the head of the Baratheon pretender on a spike above the gates of King's Landing. As the night's mists burned away, Old Town took form around him, emerging ghost-like from the pre-dawn gloom. Pate had never seen King's Landing, but he knew it was a daub and wattle city, a sprawl of mud streets, thatch roofs, and wooden hovels. Old Town was built in stone, and all its streets were cobbled down to the meanest alley. The city was never more beautiful than at break of day. West of the honey wine, the guild halls lined the bank like a row of palaces. Upriver, the domes and towers of the citadel rose on both sides of the river connected by stone bridges crowded with halls and houses. Downstream, below the black marble walls and arched windows of the starry sept, 
the manses of the pious clustered like children gathered round the feet of an old dowager, and beyond, where the honey wine widened into a whispering sound, rose the high tower, its beacon fires bright against the dawn. From where it stood atop the bluffs of Battle Island, its shadow cut the city like a sword. Those born and raised in Old Town could tell the time of day by where that shadow fell. Some claimed a man could see all the way to the wall from the top. Perhaps that was why Lord Leighton had not made the descent in more than a decade, preferring to rule his city from the clouds. A butcher's cart rumbled past Pate down the river road, five piglets in the back squealing in distress. Dudging from its path, he just avoided being spattered as a townswoman emptied a pail of night soil from a window overhead. When I'm maester in a castle, I will have a horse to ride, he thought. Then he tripped upon a cobble and wondered who he was fooling. There would be no chain for him, no seat at a lord's high table, no tall white horse to ride. His days would be spent listening to ravens quark and scrubbing shit-stains of archmaester Walgrave's small clothes. He was on one knee trying to wipe the mud off his robes when a voice said, Good morrow, Pete. The alchemist was standing over him. Pete rose. The third day, you said you would be at the quill and tankard. You were with your friends. It was not my wish to intrude upon your fellowship. The alchemist wore a hooded traveller's cloak, brown and nondescript. The rising sun was peeking over the rooftops behind his shoulder, so it was hard to make out the face beneath his hood. Have you decided what you are? Must he make me say it? I suppose I am a thief. I thought you might be. The hardest part had been getting down on his hands and knees to pull the strong box from underneath Archmaester Walgrave's bed. Though the box was stoutly made and bound with iron, its lock was broken. Maester Gorman had suspected Pate of breaking it, but that wasn't true. Walgrave had broken the lock himself, after losing the key that opened it. Inside, Pate found a bag of silver stags, a lock of yellow hair tied up in a ribbon, a painted miniature of a woman who resembled Walgrave, even to her moustache, and a knight's gauntlet made of lobstered steel. The gauntlet had belonged to a prince, Walgrave claimed, though he could no longer seem to recall which one. When Pate shook it, the key fell out onto the floor. If I pick that up, I'm a thief, he remembered thinking. The key was old and heavy, made of black iron. Supposedly it opened every door at the citadel. Only the archmaesters had such keys. The others carried theirs upon their person, or hid them away in some safe place. But if Walgrave had hidden his, no one would ever have seen it again. Pate snatched up the key, and had been halfway to the door before turning back to take the silver too. A thief was a thief, whether he stole a little or a lot. Pate! One of the white ravens had called after him. Pate! 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 Do you have my dragon? he asked the alchemist. If you have what I require. Give it here. I want to see. 
Pate did not intend to let himself be cheated. The river road is not the place. Come. He had no time to think about it, to weigh his choices. The alchemist was walking away. Pate had to follow or lose Rosie and the dragon both forever. He followed. As they walked, he slipped his hand up into his sleeve. He could feel the key, safe inside the hidden pocket he had sewn there. Maester's robes were full of pockets. He had known that since he was a boy. He had to hurry to keep pace with the alchemist's longer strides. They went down an alley, around a corner, through the old thieves' market, along rag-pickers' wind. Finally the man turned into another alley, narrower than the first. "'This is far enough,' said Pate. "'There's no one about. We'll do it here.' "'As you wish.' I want my dragon, to be sure. The coin appeared. The alchemist made it walk across his knuckles, the way he had when Rosie brought the two of them together. In the morning light, the dragon glittered as it moved, and gave the alchemist's fingers a golden glow. Pate grabbed it from his hand. The gold felt warm against his palm. He brought it to his mouth, and bit down on it, the way he'd seen men do. If truth be told, he wasn't sure what gold should taste like, but he did not want to look a fool. The key, the alchemist inquired politely. Something made Pate hesitate. Is it some book you want? Some of the old Valerian scrolls, down in the locked vaults, were said to be the only surviving copies in the world. What I want is none of your concern. No, it's done, Pate told himself. Go, run back to the quill and tank it. Wake Rosie with a kiss and tell her she belongs to you. Yet still he lingered. Show me your face. As you wish. The alchemist pulled his hood down. He was just a man. And his face was just a face. A young man's face. Ordinary, with full cheeks and the shadow of a beard. A scar showed faintly on his right cheek. He had a hooked nose and a mat of dense black hair that curled tightly around his ears. It was not a face Pate recognized. I do not know you. Nor I you. Who are you? A stranger. No one. Truly. Oh. Pate had run out of words. He drew out the key and put it in the stranger's hand, feeling light-headed, almost giddy. Rosie, he reminded himself. We're done, then. He was halfway down the alley, when the cobblestones began to move beneath his feet. The stones are slick and wet, he thought. But that was not it. He could feel his heart hammering in his chest. What's happening? he said. His legs had turned to water. I don't understand. And never will, a voice said sadly. The cobblestones rushed up to kiss him. Pate tried to cry for help, but his voice was failing too. His last thought was of Rosie. The Prophet The Prophet was drowning men on Great Wyke when they came to tell him that the king was dead. It was a bleak, cold morning and the sea was as leaden as the sky. The first three men had offered their lives to the drowned god fearlessly. 
but the fourth was weak in faith and began to struggle as his lungs cried out for air. Standing waist-deep in the surf, Aaron seized the naked boy by the shoulders and pushed his head back down as he tried to snatch a breath. Have courage, he said. We came from the sea, and to the sea we must return. Open your mouth and drink deep of God's blessing. Fill your lungs with water that you may die and be reborn. It does no good to fight. Either the boy could not hear him with his head beneath the waves, or else his faith had utterly deserted him. He began to kick and thrash so wildly that Aaron had to call for help. Four of his drawn men waded out to seize the wretch and hold him under water. Lord God, who drowned for us? the priest prayed in a voice as deep as the sea. Let Edmund, your servant, be reborn from the sea as you were. Bless him with salt, bless him with stone, bless him with steel. Finally it was done. No more air was bubbling from his mouth, and all the strength had gone out of his limbs. Face down in the shallow sea floated Emmond, pale and cold and peaceful. That was when the Damphere realized that three horsemen had joined his drawn men on the pebble shore. Aaron knew the spa, a hatchet-faced old man with watery eyes, whose quavery voice was law on this part of Great White. His son Stafarian accompanied him, with another youth, whose dark red fur-lined cloak pinned at the shoulder with an ornate brooch that showed the black-and-gold war-horn of the Good Brothers. One of Gorhol's sons, the priest decided at a glance. Three tall sons had been born to a Good Brother's wife late in life, after a dozen daughters and it was said that no man could tell one son from the others. Aaron Damphir did not deign to try. Whether this be Graydon or Gormand or Gren, the priest had no time for him. He growled a brusque command, and his drawn men seized the dead boy by his arms and legs to carry him above the tide-line. The priest followed, naked, but for a sea-skin clout that covered his private parts. Goose-fleshed and dripping, he splashed back onto land, across cold-wet sand and sea-scoured pebbles. One of his drowned men handed him a robe of heavy, rough-spun, dyed in mottled greens and blues and greys. The colours of the sea and the drowned god. Aaron donned the robe and pulled his hair free. Black and wet, that hair, no blade had touched it since the sea had raised him up. It draped his shoulders like a ragged, ropey cloak, and fell down past his waist. Aaron wove strands of seaweed through it, and through his tangled, uncut beard. His drowned men formed a circle around the dead boy, praying. Norgen worked his arms, while Ross knelt astride him, pumping on his chest, but all moved aside for Aaron. He pried apart the boy's cold lips with his fingers, and gave Emmon the kiss of life, and again, and again, until the sea came gushing from his mouth. The boy began to cough and spit, and his eyes blinked open, full of fear. Another one returned, 
It was a sign of the drowned god's favor, men said. Every other priest lost a man from time to time, even Tal, the thrice drowned, who had once been thought so holy that he was picked to crown a king. But never Aaron Greyjoy. He was a damfair who had seen the god's own watery halls and returned to tell of it. Rise, he told the sputtering boy as he slapped him on his naked back. You have drowned and been returned to us. What is dead can never die. But rise, <coughs> the boy coughed violently, bringing up more water. Rises again. Every word was bought with pain. But that was the way of the world. A man must fight to live. Rises again. Emmon staggered to his feet. Harder. And stronger, you belong to the god now, Aaron told him. The other drawn men gathered round, and each gave him a punch and a kiss to welcome him to the brotherhood. One helped him don a rough-spun robe of mottled blue and green and grey. Another presented him with a driftwood cudgel. You belong to the sea now, so the sea has armed you, Aaron said. We pray that you shall wield your cudgel fiercely against all the enemies of our god. Only then did the priest turn to the three riders, watching from their saddles. Have you come to be drowned, my lords? The spar coughed. I was drowned as a boy, he said, and my son, upon his name day. Aaron snorted. That Stafarian spar had been given to the drowned god. Soon after birth, he had no doubt. He knew the manner of it, too. A quick dip into a tub of seawater that scarce wet the infant's head. Small wonder the ironborn had been conquered. They who once held sway everywhere, the sound of waves was heard. That is no true drowning, he told the riders. He that does not die in truth cannot hope to rise from death. Why have you come, if not to prove your faith? Lord Gorlson came seeking you with news, the spy indicated the youth in the red cloak. The boy looked to be no more than six and ten. Aye, and which are you? Aaron demanded. Gorman, Gorman, good brother, if it please, my lord. It is the drowned god we must please. Have you been drowned, Gorman, good brother? On my name day. Dampier, my father sent me to find you and bring you to him. He needs to see you. Here I stand. Let Lord Gorold come and feast his eyes. Aaron took a leather skin from Russ, freshly filled with water from the sea. The priest pulled out the cork and took a swallow. I am to bring you to the keep, insisted young Gorman from atop his horse. He is afraid to dismount, lest he get his boots wet. I have the gods' work to do. Aaron Greyjoy was a prophet. He did not suffer petty lords ordering him about like some thrall. Gorl's had a bird, said the spar. A maester's bird from Pike, Gorman confirmed. Dark wings, dark words. The ravens fly or salt and stone. If there are tidings that concern me... Speak them now. Such tidings as we bear, 
and for your ears alone, Dampir, the spar said. These are not matters I will speak of here before these others. These others are my drowned men, God's servants just as I am. I have no secrets from them, nor from our God, beside whose holy sea I stand. The horsemen exchanged a look. Tell him, said the spar, and the youth in the red cloak summoned up his courage. The king is dead, he said, as plain as that. Four small words, yet the sea itself trembled when he uttered them. Four kings there were in Westeros, yet Aaron did not need to ask which one was meant. Balin Greyjoy ruled the Iron Islands, and no other. The king is dead. How can that be? Aaron had seen his eldest brother, not a moon's turn past, when he had returned to the Iron Islands from harrying the stony shore. Balin's grey hair had gone half-white, whilst the priest had been away, and the stoop in his shoulders was more pronounced than when the longship sailed. Yet all in all, the king had not seemed ill. Aaron Greyjoy had built his life upon two mighty pillars. Those four small words had knocked one down. Only the drowned god remains to me. May he make me as strong and tireless as the sea. Tell me the manner of my brother's death. His grace was crossing a bridge at Pike when he fell, and was dashed upon the rocks below. The Greyjoy stronghold stood upon a broken headland, its keeps and towers built atop massive stone stacks that thrust up from the sea. Bridges knotted pike together, arched bridges of carved stone and swaying spans of hempen rope and wooden planks. Was the storm raging when he fell? Aaron demanded of them. Aye, the youth said, it was. The storm god cast him down. The priests announced, for a thousand thousand years sea and sky had been at war. From the sea had come the ironborn, and the fish that sustained them even in the depths of winter. But storms brought only woe and grief. My brother Balon made us great again, which earned the storm god's wrath. He feasts now in the drowned god's watery halls with mermaids to attend his every want. It shall be for us who remain behind in this dry and dismal vale to finish his great work. He pushed the cork back into his water-skin. I shall speak with your Lord Father. How far from here to Hammerhorn? Six leagues. You may ride pillion with me. One can ride faster than two. Give me your horse and the drowned god will bless you. Take my horse, Damphir, offers Stepharian Spa. No, his mount is stronger. Your horse, boy. The youth hesitated half a heartbeat, then dismounted and held the reins for the Damphir. Aaron shoved a bare black foot into a stirrup and swung himself onto the saddle. He was not fond of horses. They were creatures from the Greenlands, and helped to make men weak. But necessity required that he ride. Dark wings, dark words. A storm was brewing. He could hear it in the waves, and storms brought naught but evil. 
Meet with me at Pebbleton beneath Lord Merlin's tower, he told his drowned men as he turned the horse's head. The way was rough, up hills and woods and stony defiles, along a narrow track that off seemed to disappear beneath the horse's hooves. Great Wyke was the largest of the Iron Islands, so vast that some of its lords had holdings that did not front upon the Holy Sea. Garold Goodbrother was one such. His keep was in the Hearthstone Hills, as far from the drowned god's realm as any place in the Isles. Garol's folk toiled down in Garol's mines, in the stony dark beneath the earth. Some lived and died without setting eyes upon salt water. Small wonder that such folk are crabbed and queer. As Aaron rode, his thoughts turned to his brothers. Nine sons had been born from the loins of Kellan Greyjoy, the lord of the Iron Islands. Harlan, Quentin, and Donnell had been born of Lord Quentin's first wife, a woman of the stone trees, Balin, Euron, Victarion, Uragon, and Aaron were the sons of his second, a Sunderley of Saltcliffe. For a third wife, Kellan took a girl from the Greenlands, who gave him a sickly idiot boy named Robin, the brother best forgotten. The priest had no memory of Quentin or Donnell, who had died as infants. Harden, he recalled, but dimly, sitting grey-faced and still in the windowless tower room and speaking in whispers that grew fainter every day as the grey scale turned his tongue and lips to stone. One day we shall feast on fish together in the drowned guard's watery halls, the four of us and Yuri too. Nine sons had been born from the loins of Quell and Greyjoy, but only four had lived to manhood. That was the way of this cold world, where men fished the sea and dug in the ground and died, whilst women brought forth short-lived children from beds of blood and pain. Aaron had been the last and least of the four Krakens. Balin, the eldest and boldest, a fierce and fearless boy who lived only to restore the Arnborn to their ancient glory. At ten he scaled the flint cliffs to the blind lord's haunted tower. At thirteen he could run a long ship's oars and dance the finger dance as well as any man in the isles. At fifteen he had sailed with Dagmar Clefjaw to the Stepstones and spent a summer reaving. He slew his first man there, and took his first two salt wives. At seventeen Balon captained his own ship. He was all that an elder brother ought to be, though he had never shown Aaron aught but scorn. I was weak and full of sin, and scorn was more than I deserved. Better to be scorned by Balon the brave than beloved of Urin Crow's eye. And if age and grief had turned Balin bitter over the years, it also made him more determined than any man alive. He was born a lord's son, and died a king, murdered by a jealous god, Aaron thought. And now the storm is coming, a storm such as these isles have never known. It was long after dark by the time the priest espied the spiky iron battlements of the Hammerhorn, clawing at the crescent moon. Goral's keep was hulking and blocky, its great stones 
quarried from the cliff that loomed behind it. Below its walls the entrances of caves and ancient mines yawned like toothless black mouths. The hammerhorn's iron gates had been closed and barred for the night. Aaron beat on them with a rock until the clanging woke a guard. The youth who admitted him was the image of Gorman, whose horse he'd taken. Which one are you? Aaron demanded. Gran, my father awaits you within. The hall was dank and draughty, full of shadows. One of Garl's daughters offered the priest a horn of ale. Another poked at a sullen fire that was giving off more smoke than heat. Garl, good brother, himself was talking quietly with a slim man in fine grey robes, who wore about his neck a chain of many metals that marked him for a maester of the citadel. Where is Gormund? Garl asked when he saw Aaron. He returns afoot. Send your women away, my lord, and the maester as well. He had no love of maesters. The ravens were creatures of the storm god, and he did not trust their healing, not since Yuri. No proper man would choose a life of thraldom, nor forge a chain of servitude to wear about his throat. Jessela, Gwyn, leave us, good brother said curtly. You as well, Gren. Mr. Muranmoor will stay. He will go, insisted Aaron. This is my hall, Dunfear. It's not for you to say who must go and who remains. The maester stays. The man lives too far from the sea, Aaron told himself. Then I shall go, he told Goodbrother. Dry rushes rustled underneath the cracked soles of his bare black feet as he turned and stalked away. It seemed he had ridden a long way for naught. Aaron was almost at the door when the maester cleared his throat and said, Euron Crozai sits the sea-stone chair. The damfair turned. The hall had suddenly grown colder. Crozai is half a world away. Balin sent him off two years ago, and swore that it would be his life if he returned. Tell me, he said hoarsely. He sailed into Lordsport the day after the king's death, and claimed the castle and the crown as Balin's eldest brother said Goral, good brother. Now he sends forth ravens, summoning the captains and the kings from every isle to pike, to bend their knees and do him homage as their king. No, Eamon Damfer did not weigh his words. Only a godly man may sit to see his stone chair. The crow's eye worships naught but his own pride. You were on Pike not long ago and saw the king, said good brother. Did Balin say aught to you of the succession? Aye, they had spoken in the sea tower as the wind howled outside. The windows and the waves crashed restlessly below. Balin had shaken his head in despair when he heard what Aaron had to tell him of his last remaining son. The wars had made a weakling of him, as I feared. The king had said, I pray God that they kill him, so he cannot stand in Asher's way. That was Balon's blindness. He saw himself in his wild, headstrong daughter, and believed he should succeed him. He was wrong in that, and Aaron tried to tell him so.
No woman will ever rule the ironborn, not even a woman such as Esha, he insisted. But Balin could be deaf to things he did not wish to hear. Before the priest could answer Goral Goodbrother, the maester's mouth flapped open once again. By rights, the sea-stone chair belongs to Theon, or Asher, if the prince is dead. That is the law. A green land law, said Aaron with contempt. What is there to us? We are Arnborn, the sons of the sea, chosen of the drowned god. No woman may rule over us, nor any godless men. And Victorian, asked Goral Goodbrother. He has the iron fleet. Will Victorian make a claim, Dunfir? Euron is the elder brother, began the maester. Aaron silenced him with a look. In little fishing towns and great stone keeps alike, such a look from Damfair would have made maids feel faint and sent children shrieking to their mothers, and it was more than sufficient to quell the chain-neck thrall. Urin is elder, the priest said, but Victorian is more godly. Will it come to war between them? asked the maester. Ironborn must not spill the blood of Ironborn. A pious sentiment, Dumfair, said good brother, but not one that your brother shares. He had Swain Botley drowned for saying that the seastone chair by rights belonged to Theon. If he was drowned, no blood was shed said Aaron. The maester and the lord exchanged a look. I must send word to Pike, and soon, said Goral Goodbrother. Damphir, I will have your counsel. What shall it be, homage or defiance? Aaron tugged his beard and thought, I have seen the storm, and its name is Euron Crozeye. For now, send only silence, he told the lord. I must pray on this. Pray all you wish, the maester said. It does not change the law. Theon is the rightful heir, and Asher next. Silence! Aaron roared. Too long have the Arnborn listened to you chain-neck maesters prating of the Greenlands and their laws. It is time we listen to the sea again. It is time we listen to the voice of God. His own voice rang in that smoky hall, so full of power, that neither Gorald Goodbrother nor his maester dared a reply. The drowned god is with me, Aaron thought. He has shown me the way. Goodbrother offered him the comforts of the castle for the night, but the priest declined. He seldom slept beneath the castle roof, and never so far from the sea. Comforts I shall know in the drowned god's watery halls, beneath the waves. We are born to suffer. That our suffering might make us strong. All that I require is a fresh horse to carry me to Pebbleton. That good brother was pleased to provide. He sent his son, Graydon, as well, to show the priest the shortest way through the hills down to the sea. Dawn was still an hour off when they set forth, but their mounts were hardy and sure-footed and they made good time despite the darkness. Aaron closed his eyes and said a silent prayer, and after a while began to drowse in the saddle. The sound came softly, the scream of a rusted hinge. Yuri, he muttered, 
and woke fearful. There is no hinge here, no door, no Yuri. A flying axe took off half of Yuri's hand when he was ten and four, playing at the finger dance whilst his father and elder brothers were away at war. Lord Callan's third wife had been a piper of Pink Maiden Castle, a girl with big soft breasts and brown doe's eyes. Instead of healing Yuri's hand the old way with fire and seawater, she gave him to the Greenland's maester, who swore that he could sew back the missing fingers. He did that, and later he used potions and poultices and herbs, but the hand mortified, and Yuri took a fever. By the time the maester sawed his arm off, it was too late. Lord Kellen never returned from his last voyage. The drowned guard, in his goodness, granted him a death at sea. It was Lord Balin who came back, with his brothers, Euron and Victorian. When Balin heard what had befallen Yuri, he removed three of the maester's fingers with a cooked cleaver, and sent his father's piper-wife to sew them back on. Poultices and potions worked as well for the maester as they had for Eurigan. He died raving, and Lord Quellen's third wife followed soon thereafter as the midwife drew a stillborn daughter from her womb. Aaron had been glad. It had been his axe that seared off Yuri's hand, whilst they danced, the finger danced together, as friends and brothers will. It shamed him still to recall the years that followed Yuri's death. At six and ten he called himself a man, but in truth he had been a sack of wine with legs. He would sing, he would dance, but not the finger dance never again. He would jape and jabber and make mock. He played the pipes, he juggled, he rode horses, and he could drink more than all the winches and the buckleys and half the harlaws, too. The drowned god gives every man a gift, even him. No man could piss longer or further than Aaron Greyjoy, as he proved at every feast. Once he bet his new longship against a herd of goats, that he could quench a hearth-fire with no more than his cock. Aaron feasted on goat for a year, and named the longship Golden Storm, though Balin threatened to hang him from her mast when he heard what sort of ram his brother proposed to mount upon her prow. In the end the Golden Storm went down off Fair Isle during Balin's first rebellion, cut in half by a towering war-galley called Fury when Stannis Baratheon caught Victorian in his trap and smashed the Iron Fleet. Yet the guard was not done with Aaron, and carried him to shore. Some fishermen took him captive and marched him down to Lannisport in chains, and he spent the rest of the war in the bowels of Casterly Rock, proving that krakens can piss farther and longer than lions, boars, or chickens. That man is dead. Aaron had drowned and been reborn from the sea, the guard's own prophet. No mortal man could frighten him, no more than the darkness could, nor memories, the bones of the soul, the sound of a door opening, the scream of a rusted iron hinge. Urin has come again. It did not matter. He was a damnfire priest, beloved of the god. Will I come to war? asked Graydon, good brother, as the sun was lightening the hills. 
a war of brother against brother. If the drawn god wills it, no godless man may sit the sea-stone chair. The crow's eye will fight, that is certain. No woman could defeat him, not even Asia. Women were made to fight their battles in the birthing bed, and Theon, if he lived, was just as hopeless, a boy of sulks and smiles. At Winterfell he proved his worth, such that it was, but the crow's eye was no crippled boy. The decks of Euron's ship were painted red to better hide the blood that soaked them. Victorian, the king must be Victorian, or the storm will slay us all. Graydon left him when the sun was up, to take the news of Balin's death to his cousins in their towers at Down Delving, Crowspike Keep, and Corpse Lake. Aaron continued on alone, up hills and down vales, along a stony track that drew wider and more travelled as he neared the sea. In every village he paused to preach, and in the yards of petty lords as well. We were born from the sea, and to the sea we all return, he told them. His voice was as deep as the ocean, and thundered like the waves. The storm-god, in his wrath, plucked Balin from his castle and cast him down, and now he feasts beneath the waves in the drowned god's watery halls. He raised his hands. Balon is dead! The king is dead! Yet a king will come again, for what is dead may never die, but rises again harder and stronger. A king will rise! Some of those who heard him threw down their hoes and picks to follow. So by the time he heard the crash of waves, a dozen men walked behind his horse, touched by God and desirous of drowning. Pebbleton was home to several thousand fisherfolk whose hovels huddled around the base of a small tower house with a turret at each corner. Two score of Aaron's drawn men there awaited him, camped along a grey sand beach in sealskin tents and shelters built of driftwood. Their hands were roughened by brine, scarred by nets and lines, calloused from oars and picks and axes. But now those hands gripped driftwood cudgels hard as iron, for the gods had armed them from his arsenal beneath the sea. They had built a shelter for the priest just above the tide-line. Gladly he crawled into it, after he had drowned his newest followers. My God, he prayed, speak to me in the rumble of the waves, and tell me what to do. The captains and the kings await your word. Who shall be our king in Balaam's place? Sing to me in the language of Leviathan, that I may know his name. Tell me, O Lord, beneath the waves, who has the strength to fight the storm on Pike? Though his ride to Hammerhorn had left him weary, Aaron Damfair was restless in his driftwood shelter, roofed over with black weeds from the sea. The clouds rolled in to cloak the moon and stars, and the darkness lay as thick upon the sea as it did upon his soul. Balon favoured Asher, the child of his body, 
But a woman cannot rule the ironborn. It must be Victorian. Nine sons had been born from the loins of Kellan Greyjoy, and Victorian was the strongest of them, a bull of a man, fearless and dutiful. And therein lies our danger. A younger brother owes obedience to an elder, and Victorian was not a man to sail against tradition. He has no love for Euron, though, not since the woman died. Outside, beneath the snoring of his drowned men and the keening of the wind, he could hear the pounding of the waves, the hammer of his god calling him to battle. Aaron crept from his little shelter into the chill of the night. Naked he stood, pale and gaunt and tall, and naked he walked into the black, salt sea. The water was icy cold, yet he did not flinch from his god's caress. A wave smashed against his chest, staggering him. The necks broke over his head. He could taste the salt on his lips and feel the god around him, and his ears rang with the glory of his song. Nine sons were born from the loins of Kellen Greyjoy, and I was the least of them as weak and frightened as a girl. But no longer. That man is drowned, and the god has made me strong. The cold salt sea surrounded him, embraced him, reached down through his weak man's flesh, and touched his bones. Bones, he thought. The bones of the soul, Balon's bones and Uri's. The truth is, in our bones, for flesh decays, and bone endures. And on the hill of Naga, the bones of the Grey King's Hall. And gaunt and pale and shivering, Aaron Damphair struggled back to the shore, a wiser man than he had been when he stepped into the sea for he had found the answer in his bones, and the way was plain before him. The night was so cold that his body seemed to steam as he stalked back towards his shelter. But there was a fire burning in his heart, and sleep came easily for once, unbroken by the scream of iron hinges. When he woke, the day was bright and windy. Aaron broke his fast on a broth of clams and seaweed cooked above a driftwood fire. No sooner had he finished than the mailman descended from his tower house with half a dozen guards to seek him out. The king is dead, the damper told him. I, I had bird, and now another. The Merlin was a bald, round, fleshy man who styled himself Lord in the manner of the Greenlands, and dressed in furs and velvets. One raven summoned me to pike, another to ten towers. Your crackens have too many arms. You pull a man to pieces. What say you, priest? Where should I send my longships? Aaron scowled. Ten towers, did you say? What kraken calls you there? Ten towers was the seat of the Lord of Harlow. The Princess Asher, she has set her sails for home. The reader sends out ravens, summoning all her friends to Harlow. 
he says that Balon meant for her to sit the sea-stone chair. The drowned god shall decide who sits the sea-stone chair. The priest said, Kneel, that I might bless you. Lord Merlin sank to his knees, and Aaron uncorked his skin and poured a stream of sea-water on his bald pate. Lord God, who drowned for us, let Meldred your servant be born again from the sea. Bless him with salt, bless him with stone, bless him with steel. Water ran down Merlin's fat cheeks to soak his beard and fur-fox mantle. What is dead may never die, Aaron finished, but rises again harder and stronger. But when Merlin rose, he told him, Stay and listen, that you may spread God's word. Three feet from the water's edge, the waves broke around a rounded granite boulder. It was there that Aaron Damphair stood, so all his school might see him and hear the words he had to say. We were born from the sea, and to the sea we will return, he began as he had a hundred times before. The storm-god, in his wrath, plucked Balin from his castle and cast him down, and now he feasts beneath the waves. He raised his hands. The Iron King is dead, yet a king will come again, for what is dead may never die, but rises again harder and stronger. A king shall rise, the drowned men cried. He shall, he must, but who? The damphair listened for a moment, but only the waves gave answer. Who shall be our king? The drowned men began to slam their driftwood cudgels one against the other. Damphair, they cried, damphair king, Aaron king, give us damphair. Aaron shook his head. If a father has two sons, and gives to one an axe, and to the other a net, which does he intend should be the warrior? The axe is for the warrior, Rush shouted back, the net for a fisher of the seas. Aye, said Aaron, the god took me deeper beneath the waves, and drowned the worthless thing I was. When he cast me forth again, he gave me eyes to see, ears to hear, and a voice to spread his word that I might be his prophet and teach his truth to those who have forgotten. I was not made to sit upon the sea-stone chair, no more than Urin Crow's eye, for I have heard the god who says, No godless man may sit my sea-stone chair. The Merlin crossed his arms against his chest. Is it Ephrodel or Victorian? Tell us, priest. The drowned god will tell you, but not here. Aaron pointed at the Merlin's fat white face. Look not to me, nor to the laws of men, but to the sea. Raise your sails, and unship your oars, my lord, and take yourself to old Wyke, you and all the captains and the kings. Go not to Pike, 
to bow before the godless, nor to harlow to consort with scheming women. Point your prow towards old white, where stood the grey king's hall. In the name of the drowned god, I summon you. I summon all of you. Leave your halls and hovels, your castles and your keeps, and return to Nagger's Hill to make a king's moot. The Merlin gaped at him. A king's moot? There has not been a true king's moot in too long a time, Aaron cried in anguish. Yet in the dawn of days the unborn chose their own kings, raising up the worthiest among them. It is time we returned to the old way, for only that shall make us great again. It was a king's moot that chose Eurus Ironfoot for high king, and placed a driftwood crown upon his brows. Silas Flatnose, Harrog Hall, the old kraken, the king's moot raised them all, and from this king's moot shall emerge a man to finish the work King Balin has begun, and win us back our freedoms. Go not to Pike, nor to the ten towers of Harlaw, but to old Wyke. I say again, seek the hill of Nagger and the bones of the grey king's hall, for in that holy place, when the moon has drowned and come again, we shall make ourselves a worthy king, a godly king. He raised his bony hands on high again. Listen, listen to the waves. Listen to the God. He is speaking to us, and he says we shall have no king but from the king's moot. A roar went up at that, and the drawn men beat their cudgels one against the other. A king's moot! They shouted, A king's moot! A king's moot! No king but from the king's moot! And the clamor that they made was so thunderous that surely the crow's eye heard the shouts on Pike and the vile storm god in his cloudy hall. And Aaron Dampfair knew he had done well. The Captain of Guards the blood oranges are well past ripe, the prince observed in a weary voice, when the captain rolled him onto the terrace. After that, he did not speak again for hours. It was true about the oranges, a few had fallen to burst open on the pale pink marble. The sharp, sweet smell of them filled Hotar's nostrils each time he took a breath. No doubt the prince could smell them, too. As he sat beneath the tree in the rolling chair Maester Calliot had made for him, with its goose-down cushions and rumbling wheels of ebony and iron. For a long while the only sounds were the children splashing in the pools and fountains, and once a soft plop as another orange dropped onto the terrace to burst. Then from the far side of the palace the captain heard the faint drumbeat of boots on marble. Obara. He knew her stride. Long-legged, hasty, angry. In the stables by the gates her horse would be lathered, and bloody from her spurs. 
She always rode stallions, and had been heard to boast that she could master any horse in dawn, and any man as well. The captain could hear other footsteps as well, the quick soft scoffing of Maester Calliot, hurrying to keep up. Obara Sand always walked too fast. She is chasing after something she can never catch, the prince had told his daughter once, in the captain's hearing. When she appeared beneath the triple arch, Arya Hotar swung his long axe sideways to block the way. The head was on a shaft of mountain ash six feet long, so she could not go around. My lady, no farther. His voice was a bass grumble, thick with the accents of Norvos. The prince does not wish to be disturbed. Her face had been stone before he spoke. Then it hardened. You are in my way, Hotar. Obara was the eldest sand snake, a big-boned woman near to thirty, with the close-set eyes and rat-brown hair of the old-town whore who'd birthed her. Beneath a mottled sand-silk cloak of dun and gold, her riding clothes were of old brown leather, worn and supple. They were the softest things about her. On one hip she wore a coiled whip, across her back a round shield of steel and copper. She had left her spear outside. For that, Arya Hotar gave thanks. Quick and strong as she was, the woman was no match for him. He knew, but she did not, and he had no wish to see her blood upon the pale pink marble. Maester Calliot shifted his weight from foot to foot. Lady Ubara, I'll try to tell you. Does he know that my father is dead? Obara asked the captain, paying the maester no more mind than she would a fly, if any fly had been foolish enough to buzz about her head. He does, the captain said. He had a bird. Death had come to dawn on raven wings, writ small and sealed with a blob of hard red wax. Calliot must have sensed what was in that letter, for he'd given it to Hotar to deliver. The prince thanked him but for the longest time he would not break the seal. All afternoon he sat with a parchment in his lap, watching the children at their play. He watched until the sun went down, and the evening air grew cool enough to drive them inside. Then he watched the starlight on the water. It was moonrise before he sent Hotar to fetch a candle, so he might read his letter beneath the orange trees in the dark of night. Obara touched her whip. Thousands are crossing the sands afoot to climb the boneway, so they may help Alaria bring my father home. The seps are packed to bursting, and the red priests have lit their temple fires. In the pillow houses, women are coupling with every man who comes to them and refusing any coin. In some spear, on the broken arm, along the green blood, in the mountains, out in the deep sand, everywhere. Everywhere. Women tear their hair, and men cry out in rage. The same question is heard on every tongue. What will Doran do? What will his brother do to avenge our murdered prince? She moved closer to the captain. And you say he does not wish to be disturbed? He does not wish to be disturbed, Ariel Hotar said again. 
The captain of guards knew the prince he guarded. Once, long ago, a callow youth had come from Norvos, a big, broad-shouldered boy with a mop of dark hair. That hair was white now, and his body bore the scars of many battles. But his strength remained, and he kept his long axe sharp, as the bearded priests had taught him. She shall not pass, he told himself, and said, The prince is watching the children at their play. He is never to be disturbed when he is watching the children at their play. Hotar, said Obarasan, you will remove yourself from my path, else I shall take that long axe and... Captain, came the command from behind, let her pass. I will speak with her. The prince's voice was hoarse. Arya Hotar jerked his long axe upright and stepped to one side. Obara gave him a lingering last look and strode past, the maester hurrying at her heels. Caliot was no more than five feet tall and bald as an egg. His face was so smooth and fat that it was hard to tell his age. But he had been here before the captain, had even served the prince's mother. Despite his age and girth, he was still nimble enough, and clever as they came, but meek. He is no match for any chance, Snake, the captain thought. In the shade of the orange trees, the prince sat in his chair with his gouty legs propped up before him and heavy bags beneath his eyes, though whether it was grief or gout that kept him sleepless, Hotar could not say. Below in the fountains and the pools, the children were still at play. The youngest was no more than five, the oldest nine and ten. Half were girls and half were boys. Hotar could hear them splashing and shouting at each other in high, shrill voices. It was not so long ago that you were one of the children in these pools, Obara, the prince said when she took one knee before his rolling chair. She snorted. It has been twenty years, or near enough to make no matter, and I was not here long. I am the whore's whelp, or had you forgotten? When he did not answer, she rose again and put her hands upon her hips. My father has been murdered. He was slain in single combat during a trial by battle, Prince Doran said. By law, that is no murder. He was your brother. He was. What do you mean to do about his death? The prince turned his chair laboriously to face her. Though he was but two and fifty, Doran Martell seemed much older. His body was soft and shapeless beneath his linen robes, and his legs were hard to look upon. The gout had swollen and reddened his joints grotesquely. His left knee was an apple, his right a melon, and his toes had turned to dark red grapes, so ripe it seemed as though a touch would burst them. Even the weight of a coverlet could make him shudder, though he bore the pain without complaint. A silence is a prince's friend, the captain had heard him tell his daughter once. Words are like arrows, Ariane. Once loosed, you cannot call them back. I have written to Lord Tywin. Written? If you were half the man my father was, I am not your father. That I knew, Obara's voice was thick with contempt. You would have me go to war? I know better. You need not even leave your chair. Let me avenge my father. You have a host in the prince's pass. 
Lord Ironwood, as another, in the boneway. Grant me the one, and name the other. Let her ride the king's road, while I turn the marcher lords out of their castles, and hoop round to march on Old Town. And how could you hope to hold Old Town? It will be enough to sack it. The wealth of Hightower, is it gold you want? It is blood I want. Lord Tywin shall deliver us the mountain's head. And who will deliver us Lord Tywin's head, eh? The mountain has always been his pet. The prince gestured toward the pools. Obara, look at the children, if it please you. It does not please me. I get more pleasure from driving my spear into Lord Tywin's belly. I'll make him sing the reins of Castamere as I pull his bowels out and look for gold. Look, the prince repeated. I command you. A few of the older children lay face down upon the smooth pink marble, browning in the sun. Others paddled in the sea beyond. Three were building a sandcastle with a great spike that resembled the spear tower of the old palace. A score or more had gathered in the big pool to watch the battles as smaller children rode through the waist-deep shallows on the shoulders of the larger and tried to shove each other into the water. Every time a pair went down, the splash was followed by a roar of laughter. They watched a nut-brown girl yank a tow-headed boy off his brother's shoulders to tumble him headfirst into the pool. Your father played that same game once as I did before him, said the prince. We had ten years between us, and so I had left the pools by the time he was old enough to play. But I would watch him when I came to visit mother. He was so fierce, even as a boy, quick as a water snake. I often saw him topple boys much bigger than himself. He reminded me of the day he left for King's Landing. He swore that he would do it one more time, else I would never have let him go. Let him go? Obara laughed, as if you could have stopped him. The Red Viper of Dawn went where he would. He did? I wish I had some word of comfort. I did not come to you for comfort. Her voice was full of scorn. The day my father came to claim me, my mother did not wish me to go. She is a girl, she said, and I do not think that she is yours. I had a thousand other men. He tossed his spear at my feet and gave my mother the back of his hand across the face. So she began to weep. Girl or boy, we fight our battles, he said. But the gods let us choose our weapons. He pointed to the spear, then to my mother's tears, and I picked up the spear. I told you she was mine, my father said and took me. My mother drank herself to death within the year. They say she was weeping as she died. Obara edged closer to the prince in his chair. Let me use the spear. I ask no more. It is a deal to ask, Obara. I shall sleep on it. You have slept too long already. You may be right. I will send word to you at Sunspear. So long as the word is war. Obara turned upon her heel 
and strode off as angrily as she had come, back to the stables for a fresh horse and another headlong gallop down the road. Maester Calliot remained behind. My prince, the little round man asked, do your legs hurt? The prince smiled faintly. Is the sun hot? Shall I fetch a draught for the pain? No, I need my wits about me. The maester hesitated. My prince, is it, is it prudent to allow Lady Obara to return to Sunspear? She is certain to inflame the common people. They loved your brother well. So did we all. He pressed his fingers to his temple. No, you are right. I must return to Sunspear as well. The little round man hesitated. Is that wise? Not wise, but necessary. Best send a rider to Ricasso and have him open my apartments in the Tower of the Sun. Inform my daughter Ariane that I will be there on the morrow. My little princess. The captain had missed her sorely. You will be seen, the maester warned. The captain understood. Two years ago, when they had left Sunspear for the peace and isolation of the water gardens, Prince Dorensgaard had not been half so bad. In those days he still walked, albeit slowly, leaning on a stick, and grimacing with every step. The prince did not wish his enemies to know how feeble he had grown, and the old palace and its shadow city were full of eyes. Eyes, the captain thought, and steps he cannot climb. He would need to fly to sit atop the Tower of the Sun. I must be seen. Someone must pour oil on the waters. Dawn must be reminded that it still has a prince. He smiled wanly. Old and gouty though he is. If you return to Sunspear, you will need to give audience to Princess Marcella, Calliot said. A white knight will be with her, and you know he sends letters to his queen. I suppose he does. The white knight. The captain frowned. Sir Ares had come to dawn to attend his own princess, as Arya Hotar had once come with his. Even their names sounded oddly alike. Ario and Ares. Yet there the likeness ended. The captain had left Norvas and its bearded priests, but Sir Ares Oakhart still served the Iron Throne. Hotar had felt a certain sadness whenever he saw the man in the long snowy cloak the times the prince had sent him down to Sunspear. One day he sensed the two of them would fight. On that day Oakhart would die, with the captain's long axe crashing through his skull. He slid his hand along the smooth ashen shaft of his axe, and wondered if that day was drawing nigh. The afternoon is almost done, the prince was saying. We will wait for morn. See that my litter is ready by first light. As you command, Calliot bobbed a bow. The captain stood aside to let him pass, and listened to his footsteps dwindle. Captain, the prince's voice was soft. 
Hotar strode forward, one hand wrapped about his long axe. The ash felt as smooth as a woman's skin against his palm. When he reached the rolling chair, he thumped its butt down hard to announce his presence. But the prince had eyes only for the children. Did you have brothers, Captain? he asked. Back in Norvas, when you were young, sisters? Both, Hotar said. Two brothers, three sisters. I was the youngest. The youngest and unwanted. Another mouse to feed. A big boy who ate too much and soon outgrew his clothes. Small wonder they had sold him to the bearded priests. I was the oldest, the prince said, and yet I am the last. After Moors and Olivar died in their cradles, I gave up hope of brothers. I was nine when Elia came, a squire in service at Saltshore. When the raven arrived with word that my mother had been brought to bed a month too soon, I was old enough to understand that meant the child would not live. Even when Lord Gargallon told me that I had a sister, I assured him that she must shortly die. Yet she lived, by the mother's mercy, and a year later Oberon arrived, squalling and kicking. <laughs> I was a man grown when they were playing in these pools. Yet here I sit, and they are gone. Arya Hattar did not know what to say to that. He was only a captain of guards, and still a stranger to this land, and its seven-faced god. Even after all these years, serve, obey, protect. He had sworn those vows at six and ten, the day he wed his axe. Simple vows for simple men, the bearded priests had said. He had not been trained to counsel grieving princes. He was still groping for some words to say when another orange fell with a heavy splat, no more than a foot from where the prince was seated. Doran winced at the sound, as if somehow it had hurt him. Enough, he sighed. It is enough. Leave me, Ariel. Let me watch the children for a few more hours. When the sun set, the air grew cool, and the children went inside in search of supper. Still the prince remained beneath the orange trees, looking out over the still pools and the sea beyond. A serving man brought him a bowl of purple olives, with flat bread, a cheese, and chickpea paste. He ate a bit of it, and drank a cup of the sweet, heavy, strong wine that he loved. When it was empty, he filled it once again. Sometimes in the deep black hours of the morning, sleep found him in his chair. Only then did the captain roll him down the moonlit gallery, past a row of fluted pillars, and through a graceful archway to a great bed with crisp, cool linen sheets in a chamber by the sea. Doran groaned as the captain moved him, but the guards were good, and he did not wake. The captain's sleeping cell adjoined the princess. He sat upon the narrow bed and found his whetstone and oilcloth in their niche, and set to work. Keep your long axe sharp, the bearded priest had told him, the day they branded him. 
he always did. As he honed the axe, Hotar thought of Norvos, the high city on the hill and the low beside the river. He could still recall the sounds of the three bells, the way that Noom's deep peals set his very bones to shuddering. The proud, strong voice of Nara, sweet Nile's silvery laughter. The taste of winter cake filled his mouth again, rich with ginger and pine nuts and bits of cherry, with nasa to wash it down. Fermented goat's milk served in an iron cup and laced with honey. He saw his mother in her dress with a squirrel collar, the one she wore but once each year, when they went to see the bears dance down the sinner's steps. And he smelled the stench of burning hair as the bearded priest touched the brand to the center of his chest. The pain had been so fierce that he thought his heart might stop. Yet Ariohotar had not flinched. The hair had never grown back over the axe. Only when both edges were sharp enough to shave with did the captain lay his ashen-iron wife down on the bed. Yawning, he pulled off his soiled clothes, tossed them on the floor, and stretched out on his straw-stuffed mattress. Seeking of the brand had made it itch, so he had to scratch himself before he closed his eyes. I should have gathered up the oranges that fell, he thought, and went to sleep dreaming of the tart, sweet taste of them, and the sticky feel of the red juice on his fingers. Dawn came too soon. Outside the stables the smallest of the three horse litters stood ready the cedarwood litter with the red silk draperies. The captain chose twenty spears to accompany it, out of the thirty who were posted at the winter gardens. The rest would stay to guard the grounds and children, some of whom were the sons and daughters of great lords and wealthy merchants. Although the prince had spoken of departing at first light, Arya Hotar knew that he would dawdle. Whilst the maester helped Doran Martel to bathe and bandaged up his swollen joints in linen wraps soaked with soothing lotions, the captain donned a shirt of copper scales, as befit his rank, and a billowing cloak of dun and yellow sand silk to keep the sun off the copper. The day promised to be hot, and the captain had long ago discarded the heavy horsehair cape and studded leather tunic he had worn in Norvos, which were like to cook a man in dawn. He had kept his iron half-helm, with its crest of sharpened spikes, but now he wore it wrapped in orange silk, weaving the cloth in and around the spikes. Elsewise, the sun beating down on the metal would have his head pounding before they saw the palace. The prince was still not ready to depart. He had decided to break his fast before he went, with a blood orange and a plate of gull's eggs, diced with bits of ham and fiery peppers. Then naught would do but he must say farewell to several of the children who had become especial favorites, the Dort boy and Lady Blackmore's brood, and the round-faced orphan girl whose father had sold cloth and spices up and down the green blood. Doran kept a splendid mirish blanket over his legs as he spoke with them, to spare the young ones the sight of his swollen bandaged joints. It was midday before they got underway, the prince in his litter, 
Mr. Calliot riding on a donkey, the rest afoot. Five spearmen walked ahead and five behind, with five more flanking the litter to either side. Aryohatar himself took his familiar place at the left hand of the prince, resting his long axe on a shoulder as he walked. The road from Sunspear to the water gardens ran beside the sea, so they had a cool, fresh breeze to soothe them as they made their way across a sparse, red-brown land of stone and sand and twisted, stunted trees. Halfway there, the second sand-snake caught them. She appeared suddenly upon a dune, mounted on a golden sand-steed with a mane like fine white silk. Even a horse the lady Nim looked graceful, dressed all in shimmering lilac robes, with a great silk cape of cream and copper that lifted at every gust of wind, and made her look as if she might take flight. Nymeria Sand was five and twenty, and slender as a willow. Her straight black hair, worn in a long braid, bound up with red-gold wire, made a widow's peak above her dark eyes, just as her father's had. With her high cheekbones, full lips, and milk-pale skin, she had all the beauty that her elder sister lacked. But Obara's mother had been an old-town whore, whilst Nim was born from the noblest blood of old Valentis. A dozen mounted spearmen tailed her, their round shields gleaming in the sun. They followed her down the dune. The prince had tied back the curtains on his litter, the better to enjoy the breeze blowing off the sea. Lady Nim fell in beside him, slowing her pretty golden mare to match the litter's pace. "'Well met, uncle!' she sang out, as if it had been chance that brought her here. "'May I ride with you to Sunspear?' The captain was on the opposite side of the litter from Lady Nim, yet he could hear every word she said. "'I would be glad of it,' Prince Doran replied, though he did not sound glad to the captain's ears. "'Gout and grief make poor companions on the road,' by which the captain knew him to mean that every pebble drove a spike through his swollen joints. "'The gout I cannot help,' she said. But my father had no use for grief. Vengeance was more to his taste. Is it true that Gregor Clegane admitted slaying Elia and her children? He roared out his guilt for all the court to hear, the prince admitted. Lord Tywin has promised us his head. And a Lannister always pays his debts, said Lady Nim. "'Yet it seems to me that Lord Tywin means to pay us with our own coin. "'I had a bird from our sweet Sir Damon "'who swears my father tickled that monster more than once as they fought. "'If so, Sir Gregor is as good as dead. "'And no thanks to Tywin Lannister.' "'The prince grimaced. "'Whether it was from the pain of gout or his niece's words, "'the captain could not say.' It may be so. Maybe. I say tis. Obara would have me go to war. Nim laughed. Yes, she wants to set the torch to Old Town. She hates that city as much as our little sister loves it. And you? Nim glanced over her shoulder to where her companions 
rode a dozen lengths behind. I was abed with the Fowler twins when the word reached me, the captain heard her say. You know the Fowler words? Let me soar. That is all I ask of you. Let me soar, uncle. I need no mighty host, only one sweet sister. Obara? Tain. Obara is too loud. Tain is so sweet and gentle that no man will suspect her. Obara would make Old Town our father's funeral pyre. But I am not so greedy. Four lives will suffice for me, Lord Tywin's golden twins, as payment for Elia's children, the old lion for Elia herself, and last of all, the little king for my father. The boy has never wronged us. The boy is a bastard born of treason, incest, and adultery, if Lord Stannis can be believed. The playful tone had vanished from her voice and the captain found himself watching her through narrowed eyes. Her sister Obara wore her whip upon her hip and carried a spear where any man could see it. Lady Nim was no less deadly, though she kept her knives well hidden. Only royal blood can wash out my father's murder. Oberon died during single combat fighting in a matter that was none of his concern. I do not call that murder, but call it what you will. We sent them the finest man in dawn, and they are sending back a bag of bones. He went beyond anything I asked of him. Take the measure of this boy king and his council, and make note of their strengths and weaknesses, I told him, on the terrace. We were eating oranges. Find us friends, if there are any to be found. Learn what you can of Elia's end, but see that you do not provoke Lord Tywin unduly. Those are my words to him. Oberon laughed and said, when have I provoked any man? Unduly. You would do better to warn the Lannisters against provoking me. He wanted justice for Aelia, but he would not wait. He waited ten and seven years, the Lady Nim broke in. Were it you they killed, my father would have led his banners north before your corpse was cold. Were it you, the spears would be falling thick as rain upon the marshes now. I do not doubt it. No more should you doubt this, my prince. My sisters and I shall not wait ten and seven years for our vengeance. She put her spurs into the mare, and she was off, galloping toward Sunspear with her tail in hot pursuit. The prince leaned back against his pillow and closed his eyes. But Hattar knew he did not sleep. He is in pain. For a moment he considered calling Maester Calliot up to the litter, but if Prince Doran had wanted him, he would have called himself. The shadows of the afternoon were long and dark, and the sun was as red and swollen as the prince's joints, before they glimpsed the towers of Sunspear to the east. First the slender spear tower, a hundred and a half feet tall, crowned with a spear of gilded steel that added another thirty feet to its height. Then the mighty Tower of the Sun, 
with its dome of gold and leaded glass, last the dun-coloured sand-ship, looking like some monstrous drummond that had washed ashore and turned to stone. Only three leagues of coast road divided Sunspear from the water gardens, yet they were two different worlds. There children frolicked naked in the sun, music played in tile courtyards, and the air was sharp with the smell of lemons and blood oranges. Here the air smelled of dust, sweat, and smoke, and the nights were alive with a babble of voices. In place of the pink marble of the water gardens, Sunspear was built from mud and straw, and coloured brown and dun. The ancient stronghold of Haas Martel stood at the easternmost end of a little jut of stone and sand, surrounded on three sides by the sea. To the west, in the shadows of Sunspear's massive walls, mud-brick shops and windowless hovels clung to the castle like barnacles to a galley's hull. Stables and inns and wine-sinks and pillow-houses had grown up west of those, many enclosed by walls of their own, and yet more hovels had risen beneath those walls, and so, and so, and so, as the bearded priests would say. Compared to Tyrosh, or Mir, or Great Norvas, the Shadow City was no more than a town, yet it was the nearest thing to a true city that these Dornish had. Lady Nim's arrival had preceded theirs by some hours, and no doubt she had warned the guards of their coming, for the threefold gate was open when they reached it. Only here were the gates lined up, one behind the other, to allow visitors to pass beneath all three of the winding walls directly to the old palace, without first making their way through miles of narrow alleys, hidden courts, and noisy bazaars. Prince Doran had closed the draperies of his litter as soon as the spear tower came in sight, yet still the small folk shouted out to him as the litter passed. The sand snakes have stirred them to a boil, the captain thought uneasily. They crossed the squalor of the outer crescent and went through the second gate. Beyond, the winds tank of tar and salt water and rotting seaweed, and the crowd grew thicker with every step. Make way for Prince Doran! Ariahotar boomed out, something the butt of his long axe on the bricks. Make way for the Prince of Dawn! The Prince is dead! A woman shrilled behind him. To spears! A man bellowed from a balcony. Doran! called some high-born voice. To the spears! Hotar gave up looking for the speakers. The press was too thick and a third of them were shouting, To Spears! Vengeance for the Viper! By the time they reached the third gate, the guards were shoving people aside to clear a path for the prince's litter, and the crowd was throwing things. One ragged boy darted past a spearman with a half-rotten pomegranate in one hand, but when he saw Ariahotar in his path, with long axe at the ready, he let the fruit fall unthrown and beat a quick retreat. Others farther back let fly with lemons, limes, and oranges, crying, War! War! To the spears! One of the guards was hit in the eye with a lemon, and the captain himself had an orange splatter of his foot. No answer came from within the litter. Dorin Martell stayed coked within his silken walls, 
until the thicker walls of the castle swallowed all of them, and the portcullis came down behind them with a rattling crunch. The sound of shouting dwindled away slowly. Princess Ariane was waiting in the outer ward to greet her father, with half the court about her. The old blind seneschal, Ricasso, Sir Manfrey Martel, the castellan, young Maester Miles with his grey robes and silky perfumed beard, two score of Dornish knights in flowing linen of half a hundred hues. Little Marcella Baratheon stood with her scepter and Sir Ares of the King's God, sweltering in his white enamel scales. Princess Ariane strode to the litter on snakeskin sandals laced up to her thighs. Her hair was a mane of jet-black ringlets that fell to the small of her back, and around her brow was a band of copper suns. She's still a little thing, the captain thought. Where the sand snakes were tall, Ariane took after her mother, who stood but five feet two. Yet beneath her jeweled girdle and loose layers of flowing purple silk and yellow samite, she had a woman's body, lush and roundly curved. Father, she announced, as the curtains opened, Sunspear rejoices at your return. Yes, I heard the joy. The prince smiled wanly and cupped his daughter's cheek with a red and swollen hand. You look well. A captain would be so good as to help me down from here. Hotar slipped his long axe into its sling across his back and gathered the prince into his arms, tenderly so as not to jar his swollen joints. Even so, Doran Martel bit back a gasp of pain. I have commanded the cooks to prepare a feast for this evening, Arian said. With all your favorite dishes, I fear I could not do them justice. The prince glanced slowly around the yard. I do not see Tyene. She begs a private word. I sent her to the throne room to await your coming. The prince sighed. Very well, Captain. The sooner I am done with this, the sooner I may rest. Hotar bore him up the long stone steps of the Tower of the Sun to the great round chamber beneath a dome, where the last light of the afternoon was slanting down through thick windows of many-coloured glass to dapple the pale marble with diamonds of half a hundred colours. There the third sand-snake, awaited them. She was sitting cross-legged on a pillow beneath the raised dais, where the high seat stood. But she rose as they entered, dressed in a clinging gown of pale blue semite, with sleeves of mirish lace that made her look as innocent as the maid herself. In one hand was a piece of embroidery she had been working on, in the other a pair of golden needles. Her hair was gold as well and her eyes were deep blue pools, and yet somehow they reminded the captain of his father's eyes, though Oberon's had been as black as night. All of Prince Oberon's daughters have had viper eyes, Hotar realized suddenly. The color does not matter. Uncle, said Tyeen Sand, I have been waiting for you. Captain, help me to the high seat. There were two seats on the desk near twin to one another, save that one had the Martel spear inlaid in gold upon his back, 
whilst the other bore the blazing Roynish sun that had flown from the masts of Nemira's ships when first they came to dawn. The captain placed the prince beneath the spear and stepped away. Does it hurt so much? Lady Tyan's voice was gentle, and she looked as sweet as summer strawberries. Her mother had been a scepter, and Tyene had an air of almost otherworldly innocence about her. Is there aught that I might do to ease your pain? Say what you would, and let me rest. I am weary, Tyene. I made this for you, uncle. Tyene unfolded the piece she'd been embroidering. It showed her father, Prince Oberon, mounted on a sand steed, and armoured all in red, smiling. When I finish, it is yours to help you remember him. I am not like to forget your father. Well, that is good to know. Many have wondered. Lord Tywin has promised us the mountain's head. He is so kind, but a headsman's sword is no fit end for brave Sir Gregor. We have prayed so long for his death, it is only fair that he pray for it as well. I know the poison that my father used, and there is none slower or more agonizing. Soon we may hear the mountain screaming, even here in Sunspear. Prince Doran sighed. Ah, Abara cries to me for war. Nim will be content with murder. And you? War said Tyene. Though not my sister's war, Dornishmen fight best at home, so let us hone our spears and wait. When the Lannisters and Tyrells come down upon us, we shall bleed them in the passes and bury them beneath the blowing sands as we have a hundred times before. If they should come down on us, oh, but they must, or see the realm riven once more as it was before we wed the dragons. Father told me so. He said we had the imp to thank for sending us Princess Marcella. She is so pretty, don't you think? I wish I had curls like her. She was made to be a queen, just like her mother. Dimples bloomed in Tyene's cheeks. I would be honored to arrange the wedding, and to see to the making of the crowns as well. Tristane and Marcella are so innocent. I thought perhaps white gold, with emeralds, to match Marcella's eyes. Oh, diamonds and pearls would serve as well, so long as the children are wed and crowned. Then we need only hail Marcella as the first of her name, Queen of the Andals, the Roynar, and the First Men, and lawful heir to the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros and wait for the lions to come. Ha! The lawful heir, the prince snorted. She is older than her brother, explained Tyene, as if he were some fool. By law, the iron throne should pass to her, by Dornish law. When good king Darren wed Princess Maria and brought us into his kingdom, it was agreed that Dornish law would always rule in Dorn. And Marcella is in dawn, as it happens. So she is. His tone was grudging. Let me think on it. Tyene grew cross. You think too much, uncle. Do I? Father says so. Oberon thought too little. Some men think because they are afraid to do. 
There is a difference between fear and caution. Oh, I must pray that I never see you frightened, Uncle. You might forget to breathe. She raised a hand. The captain brought the butt of his lung axe down upon the marble with a thump. My lady, you presume. Step from the dais, if it please you. I, I meant no harm, Captain. I love my uncle, as I know he loved my father. Tyne went to one knee before the prince. I have said all I came to say, uncle. Forgive me if I gave offence. My heart is broken all to pieces. Do I still have your love? Always. Give me your blessing, then, and I shall go. Doran hesitated half a heartbeat before placing his hand on his niece's head. Be brave, child. Oh, how not? I am his daughter. No sooner had she taken her leave than Maester Calliot hurried to the dais. Um, my prince, uh, she did not hear. Here, let me see your hand. He examined the palm first, then gently turned it upside down to sniff at the back of the prince's fingers. No? Good. <laughs> that is good. There are no scratches, so... Um, the prince withdrew his hand. Mister, could I trouble you for some milk of the puppy? Uh, a symbol cup with suffice? The puppy is, to be sure. Now, I think, Doran Martell urged gently, and Calliot scurried to the stairs. Outside the sun had set. The light within the dome was the blue of dusk, and all the diamonds on the floor were dying. The prince sat in his high seat beneath the Martell spear, his face pale with pain. After a long silence, he turned to Ario Hotar. Captain, he said, how loyal are my guards? Oh, loyal! The captain did not know what else to say. All of them, or some? They are good men, good Dornish men. They will do as I command. He thumped his long axe on the floor. I will bring the head of any man who would betray you. I want no heads. I want obedience. You have it. Serve, obey, protect. Simple vows for a simple man. How many men are needed? I will leave that for you to decide. It may be that a few good men will serve as better than a score. I want this done as quickly and as quietly as possible, with no blood spilled. Quick and quiet and bloodless, aye. What is your command? You will find my brother's daughters, take them into custody, and confine them in the cells atop the spear tower. The sand snakes? The captain's throat was dry. All, all eight, my prince? The little ones also? The prince considered. Ilario's girls are too young to be a danger, but there are those who might seek to use them against me. It would be best to keep them safe in hand. Yes, the little ones as well. But first secure Tyene, Nymeria, and Obara. As my prince commands. His heart was troubled. My little princess will mislike this. What of Sorella? She is a woman grown, almost twenty. Unless she returns to dawn, 
there's naught I can do about Sorella, save pray that she shows more sense than her sisters. Leave her to her game. Gather up the others. I shall not sleep until I know that they are safe and under guard. It will be done, the captain hesitated. When this is known in the streets, the common folk will howl. All dawn will howl, said Doran Martell in a tired voice. I only pray Lord Tywin hears them in King's Landing, so he might know what a loyal friend he has in Sunspear. Cersei She dreamt she sat on the Iron Throne, high above them all. The courtiers were brightly coloured mice below. Great lords and proud ladies knelt before her. Bold young knights laid their swords at her feet and pleaded for her favours, and the queen smiled down at them. Until the dwarf appeared, as if from nowhere, pointing at her and howling with laughter. The lords and ladies began to chuckle too, hiding their smiles behind their hands. Only then did the queen realise she was naked. Horrified, she tried to cover herself with her hands. The barbs and blades of the iron throne bit into her flesh as she crouched to hide her shame. Blood ran red down her legs as steel teeth gnawed at her buttocks. When she tried to stand, her foot slipped through a gap in the twisted metal. The more she struggled, the more the throne engulfed her, tearing chunks of flesh from her breasts and belly, slicing at her arms and legs until they were slick and red glistening. And all the while, her brother capered below, laughing. His merriment still echoed in her ears when she felt a light touch on her shoulder and woke suddenly. For half a heartbeat, the hand seemed part of the nightmare, and Circe cried out, but it was only Sunel. The maid's face was white and frightened. We are not alone, the queen realized. Shadows loomed around her bed, tall shapes with chain mail glimmering beneath their cloaks. Armed men had no business here. Where are my guards? The bedchamber was dark, but for the lantern of one of the intruders held on high. I must show no fear. Percy pushed back sleep-tousled hair and said, What do you want of me? A man stepped into the lantern light, and she saw his cloak was white. Jamie? I dreamt of one brother, but the other has come to wake me. Your grace, the voice was not her brother's. The Lord Commander said, come get you. His hair curled as Jamie's did, but her brother's hair was beaten gold like hers, where this man's was black and oily. She stared at him confused, as he muttered about a privy and a crossbow, and said her father's name. I am dreaming still, Cersei thought. I have not woken, nor has my nightmare ended. Tyrion will creep out from under the bed soon, and begin to laugh at me. But that was folly. Her dwarf brother was down in the black cells, condemned to die this very day. She looked down at her hands, turning them over to make certain all her fingers were still there. When she ran a hand on her arm, the skin was covered with goose prickles, but unbroken. 
There were no cuts on her legs, no gashes on the soles of her feet. A dream. That's all it was, a dream. I drank too much last night. These fears are only humours born of wine. I will be the one laughing come dusk. My children will be safe, Tom and Stone will be secure, and my twisted little Valencar will be short ahead and rotting. Jocelyn Swift was at her elbow, pressing a cup on her. Cersei took a sip. Water mixed with lemon squeezings, so tart she spit it out. She could hear the night wind rattling the shutters, and she saw with a strange, sharp clarity. Jocelyn was trembling like a leaf, as frightened as Senil. Sir Osmond Kettleblack loomed above her. Behind him stood Sir Boris Blunt, with a lantern. At the door were Lannister guardsmen, with gilded lions shining on the crest of their helmets. They looked afraid as well. Can it be? The queen wondered. Can it be true? She rose and let Sennel slip a bedrobe over her shoulders to hide her nakedness. Cersei belted at herself, her fingers stiff and clumsy. My lord father keeps guards about him night and day, she said. Her tongue felt thick. She took another swallow of lemon water and slushed it round her mouth to freshen her breath. A moth had gotten into the lantern Sir Boris was holding. She could hear it buzzing and see the shadow of its wings as it beat against the glass. The guards were at their post, your grace, said Osmond Kettleblack. We found a hidden door behind the hearth, a secret passage. The Lord Commander's gone down to see where it goes. Jamie. Terror seized her, sudden as a storm. Jamie should be with the king. The lad's not been armed, so Jamie sent a dozen men to look in on him. His grace is sleeping peaceful. Let him have a sweeter dream than mine, and a kinder waking. Who is with the king? Sir Loris has that honour, if it please you. It did not please her. The Tyrells were only stewards that the dragon kings had up-jumped far above their station. Their vanity was exceeded only by their ambition. Sir Loris might be as pretty as a maiden's dream, but underneath his white cloak he was Tyrell to the bone. For all she knew, this night's foul fruit had been planted and nurtured in High Garden. But that was a suspicion she dare not speak aloud. Allow me a moment to dress... Sir Osmond, you shall accompany me to the Tower of the Hand. Sir Boris, rouse the jailers, and make certain the dwarf is still in his cell. She would not say his name. He would never have found the courage to lift a hand against father, she told herself. But she had to be certain. As your grace commands, Blunt surrendered the lantern to Sir Osmond. Cersei was not displeased to see the back of him. Father should never have restored him to the white. The man had proved himself a craven. By the time they left Magor's Holfast, the sky had turned a deep, cobbled blue, though the stars still shone. All but one, Cersei thought. The bright star of the west has fallen, and the nights will be darker now. She paused upon the drawbridge that spanned the dry moat, gazing down at the spikes below. They would not dare lie to me about such a thing. Who found him? One of his guards, said Sir Osmond. Lum, he felt a call of nature, and found his lordship in the uh, privy. No, that cannot be. 
That is not the way a lion dies. The queen felt strangely calm. She remembered the first time she had lost her tooth, when she was just a little girl. It hadn't hurt, but the hole in her mouth felt so odd she could not stop touching it with her tongue. Now there is a hole in the world where father stood, and holes want filling. If Tywin Lannister was truly dead, no one was safe, least of all her son upon the throne. When the lion falls, the lesser beasts move in, the jackals and the vultures and the feral dogs. They would try to push her aside, as they always had. She would need to move quickly, as she had when Robert died. This might be the work of Stannis Baratheon, through some cat's paw. It could well be the prelude to another attack upon the city. She hoped it was. Let him come. I will smash him, just as father did, and this time he will die. Stannis did not frighten her, no more than Mace Tyrell did. No one frightened her. She was a daughter of the rock, a lion. There will be no more talk of forcing me to wed again. Castle Rock was hers now, and all the power of House Lannister. No one would ever disregard her again. Even when Tommen had no further need of a regent, the Lady of Castle Rock would remain a power in the land. The rising sun had painted the tower tops a vivid red, but beneath the walls the night still huddled. The outer castle was so hushed that she could have believed all its people dead. They should be. It is not fitting for Tywin Lannister to die alone. Such a man deserves a retinue to attend his needs in hell. Four spearmen in red cloaks and lion-crested helms were posted at the door of the Tower of the Hand. No one is to enter or leave without my permission, she told them. The command came easily to her. My father had steel in his voice as well. Within the tower, the smoke from the torches irritated her eyes, but Cersei did not weep, no more than her father would have. I am the only true son he ever had. Her heel scraped against the stone as she climbed, and she could still hear the moth fluttering wildly inside Sir Osmond's lantern. Die, the queen thought at it, in irritation. Fly into the flame and be done with it. Two more red-cloaked guardsmen stood atop the steps. Red Lester muttered a condolence as she passed. The queen's breath was coming fast and short, and she could feel her heart fluttering in her chest. The steps, she told herself. This cursed tower has too many steps. She had half a mind to tear it down. The hall was full of fools speaking in whispers, as if Lord Tywin were asleep, and they were afraid to wake him. Guards and servants alike shrank back before her, mouths flapping. She saw their pink gums and wagging tongues, but their words made no more sense than the buzzing of the moth. What are they doing here? How did they know? By rights they should have called her first. She was the Queen Regent. Had they forgotten that? Before the hen's bedchamber stood Sir Merrin Trent, in his white armour and cloak. The visor of his helm was open, and the bags beneath his eyes made him look still half asleep. Clear these people away, Cersei told him. Is my father in the privy? Uh, they carried him back to his bed, my lady. Sir Merrin pushed the door open for her to enter. 
Morning light slashed through the shutters to paint golden bars upon the rushes strewn across the floor of the bedchamber. Her uncle, Kevin, was on his knees beside the bed, trying to pray, but he could scarcely get the words out. Guardsmen clustered near the hearth. The secret door that Sir Osmond had spoken of gaped open behind the ashes, no bigger than an oven. A man would need to crawl. But Tyrion is only half a man, the thought made her angry. No, the dwarf is locked in a black cell. This could not be his work. Stannis, she told herself. Stannis was behind it. He still has adherents in the city. Him or the Tyrells. There had always been talk of secret passages within the Red Keep. Magor, the cruel, was supposed to have killed the men who built the castle, to keep the knowledge of them secret. How many other bedchambers have hidden doors? Cersei had a sudden vision of the dwarf calling out from behind a tapestry in Tommen's bedchamber with blade in hand. Tommen is well guarded, she told herself. But Lord Tywin had been well guarded, too. For a moment she did not recognize the dead man. He had hair like her father's, yes, but this was some other man, surely. A smaller man, and much older. His bedrobe was hiked up around his chest, leaving him naked below the waist. The quarrel had taken him in his groin between his navel and his manhood, and was sunk so deep that only the fletching showed. His pubic hair was stiff with dried blood. More was congealing in his navel. The smell of him made her wrinkle her nose. Take the quarrel out of him, she commanded. This is the king's hand. And my father? My lord father, should I scream and tear my hair? They said Caitlin Stark had clawed her own face to bloody ribbons when the fray slew her precious rub. Would you like that, father? She wanted to ask him. Or would you want me to be strong? Did you weep for your own father? Her grandfather had died when she was only a year old, but she knew the story. Lord Titus had grown very fat, and his heart burst one day when he was climbing the steps to his mistress. Her father was off in King's Landing when it happened, serving as a mad king's hand. Lord Tywin was often away in King's Landing when she and Jamie were young. If he wept when they brought him word of his father's death, he did it where no one could see the tears. The queen could feel her nails digging into her palms. How could ye leave him like this? My father was hand to three kings, as great a man as ever strode the seven kingdoms. The bells must ring for him, as they rang for Robert. He must be bathed and dressed as befits his stature, in ermine and cotton gold and crimson silk. Where is Pycelle? Where is Pycelle? She turned to the guardsman. Puckins, bring Grand Maester Pycelle. He must see to Lord Tywin. He seen him, your grace, said Puckins. He came and saw and went to summon the silent sisters. They sent for me lost. The realization made her almost too angry for words. And Pycelle runs off to send a message rather than soil his soft, wrinkled hands? The man is useless. Find Maester Balabar, she commanded. Find Maester Franken, any of them. Puckins and Shorthair ran to obey. Where is my brother? Down the tunnel. 
There's a shaft with iron rungs set in the stone. Sir Jamie went to see how deep it goes. He has only one hand. She wanted to shout at them. One of you should have gone. He has no business climbing ladders. The men who murdered father might be down there, waiting for him. Her twin had always been too rash, and it would seem that even losing a hand had not taught him caution. She was about to command the guards to go down after him and bring him back when Puckins and Shorthair returned with a grey-haired man between them. Your grace, said Shorthair, this hair claims he was a maester. The man bowed low. How may I serve your grace? His face was vaguely familiar, though Cersei could not place him. Old, but not so old as Pycelle. This one,